Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover The Regulators. Chapters 8 and 9. Let's start the show. A break in the shooting from the vans on Poplar Street gives the characters a chance to make plans and figure some things out. Author Johnny Marinville asked the newly orphaned Ralphie about the toy that matches one of the drivers of the van. Later, Johnny and the Reed twins look for a way into another neighborhood. Elsewhere, Cop Kali and Trajan and Steve Ames also go out looking for help. And Steve realizes that the changes that are happening look like the drawings of a young child. When the two groups meet, deadly consequences ensue. In the interstitials, we get to read from the script of the regulator's film and learn about tax tormenting of a neighbor family from Audrey's journal. Jay, the action toned down a little bit in this section, and there was a lot that we learned about what was happening on Poplar Street, both from the characters making deductions and also the interstitials as well. But then we get a lot of callbacks and flashbacks in this section too, as we learn about some of the things that happened previously to to different characters that enlighten us. Yeah, that's why I labeled this section of our notes, Johnny Doubles Back. Mm -hmm. Because in a big way, this is Johnny Marinville's section of the book or at least this section of the book is largely about his perspective and his reaction to what's going on. And one of the biggest parts of that flashback for him is his conversation with his first wife, Terry. And it's a really interesting conversation. I I liked everything about it. And she represents somebody in his life who occupies a unique position. She knows him well enough to give him good, correct advice. And cares enough about him to that that he can trust her, but maybe she no longer loves him enough to be unwilling to say hard truths. So she kind of occupies that perfect space as somebody to give him the best advice he could get. Yep. And she gives him the best advice ever, right? It makes both of them really wealthy, but it also saves his life. It seemed that Marinville was like on a downward spiral of addiction and self-abuse and things like that. And that's something that King, unfortunately, knows quite a bit about. So, you know, here's, here's the King surrogate stepping into the story, as, as we often see. But it was Terry who told Marinville to go back to the kids' book, write children's stories, and leave the city. Go someplace else and change what you do. And it really worked for him. Yeah, he he's caught in this spiral and he doesn't know how to get out of it. And it's only Terry who's able to open his eyes and say, what you have to do is not focus on literary novels and go back to this kid's book because that's when you seem to enjoy yourself the most, when you wrote this book for your nephew. Mm-hmm. We could tell that you had joy and that you you appreciated the work you were doing and that it brought out the best in you. So go do that. 
but don't do it where you're at because you'll get into some bad habits. So go away. Yeah. This gives Johnny's wife, Terry slash Richard Bachman slash Stephen King, another chance to rip the Midwest uh-huh. because she tells him the place <laughs> you think of last, the unlikeliest place on earth, Akron or Afghanistan makes no difference. And of course he ends up not in Akron exactly, but in Columbus, which is also in Ohio. And, uh, we get this nice scene of him pulling into the driveway of his new house with his agent on board and his agents just looking at him like, oh, this is a joke. And then he realizes, oh, no, it's not a joke. Johnny Marinville, he's an award winning novelist and he's living in these awful suburbanite place that you would never imagine a man like Marinville living. Yeah. As somebody who moved from New York to Ohio myself, I kind of related to the agent's perspective a little bit. I wouldn't say that I felt quite as harshly as uh, about it that, as he did, but I understood what he was saying. The one thing that I'll say is that after living in Ohio for many years myself, it, it was a jarring experience and it was very different to go from a place like New York to a place like Columbus. But there's a lot going for a place like Columbus. The people are great. You can find things that you love. You can find things to do that are that are fun. Your IQ doesn't drop just because you're there. You you don't automatically subscribe to Reader's Digest just because <laughs> you're there. Uh, neither of those things happened to me when I lived there. So I remain not subscribed to Reader's Digest all these years later. But I did get a little bit of, of this. And most of it is just a prejudice against the unknown. You assume that if you're not from a big city, that you're nothing. And that's what his agent was seeing. Yes. Like, I, I look around and I see a bunch of nothing. Or worse than nothing, dullards. Just yeah, a sameness. A, 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 what, what you get in the suburbs, this cookie cutter existence that King has referenced back in the first chapter, right? It's a perfect mm-hmm. neighborhood, perfectly manicured lawns. The young boy riding his bike down the street, nothing much happens here, but there's also nothing of cultural interest. All it is is cookie cutter houses on a cookie cutter street with a little convenience store at the bottom of the street, and that's it. Yeah. Even the map that we see in the the first couple of pages is everything is like 90 degree angles and the same size rectangles of the blocks and parallel lines and everything. It's just because there was nothing there. There was no like construction and then so architects could just plan it perfectly that way. Yep. It didn't have to fit around or among other things. So there you go. Perfect. It's quintessential. Quintessential, yes. A neighborhood where fruit cocktail is probably considered a delicacy. Yes, it is, in fact. Or no big cookies. You pull the ring off that fruit cocktail can and you put it in a little uh, little dish, you're good to go. Or a champagne glass Uh, sometimes yes the wide champagne glass that's the fancy times i've had it many a time living here in ohio good times but the important part in this section is and it's a beautifully written passage it's about johnny doing editorial work on himself Mm. and the line is the deal is i don't want to die yet and that means doing some personal editorial work a second draft johnny marinville if you like And I can do it because I have the desire, which is important, and because I have the tools, which is vital. You could say it's just another version of what I do. I'm rewriting my life, 
re-sculpting my life. And a writer writing that, like, that's just perfect, right? Like mm -hmm. using the metaphor of the book writing process to talk about his own life and rewriting it. And part of that is I'm going to scratch out where I came from and write in a new place. I'm going to scratch out the work I do and, and write a new piece. And that, that whole thing is rewriting. And again, this is starts to get into some of the themes we see in the dark tower later. Yes. There's this whole idea of creativity and how you can Patrick Danville can erase things and rewrite things and make things happen. And, and this is what Johnny Marinville is doing here in, in this section. Yeah. It could even be like the, an instance of the multiverse. Like there's probably a version of, of the world where Johnny Marinville doesn't edit himself, right? He just continues down that spiral until somebody finds him dead in his New York apartment one day. But in this one, in this world, in this timeline, whatever you want to call it, he does the editorial work. It's hard work and some hard decisions, but they worked out for him. He cleaned up his life. He got healthy. He got sober and he got really successful. He made tons of money selling these children's books. And because this was his wife's idea or his ex-wife's idea, he split all of the proceeds with her 50-50. Yep. So cha-ching. <laughs> this was some really good advice that his ex-wife Terry gave him. Of course, now he's caught in a shootout between Confederate ghosts and motocop vans. But yes, other than that, everything has worked out for him, Jay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we mentioned a little bit earlier about the fruit cocktail and what a delicacy is. Let's talk about this genre cocktail that King is continuing to experiment mm, with. See what delicious. I did there? That's called a segue. I love it. A segue with maraschino cherries. Mm, the best kind. So part of this is like, we're starting to see some things come together where Steve Ames is starting to draw some conclusions here. He's, he's making some intellectual leaps. Uh, I think the line in the book is things were starting to group together in his mind, forming a set. The, the vans, the bird, the cactuses, like something you'd see in an energetic first grader's picture or drawing. And somebody else notices that there's this buzzard, but it looks like a buzzard that a child might draw. Johnny Marville also puts these pieces together, but about the manifestations of the kids' toys. So we're seeing things like the genre of the Western being melded with the genre of science fiction and the science fiction genre of the kids' show of motocops. And they're all coming together within this single book by Richard Bachman. And that's starting to feel like this genre cocktail, like you called it, that is what the Dark Tower is. Dark Tower is all of these things and more. And by the time King gets to writing Wolves of the Kala, it's really easy to see how the Regulators is like a prototype of that story. King obviously drew direct influences or, or was directly influenced by things like the Magnificent Seven and stories like that. But the idea of pulling in sci-fi and other things into a western a heavily western story he did it here first right yeah he had he had hinted at it in in some of those earlier books but really when he hits wolves of the call on it's not just you know sci-fi and western but also pulling in influences like harry potter and star wars explicit branded items mm -hmm. and here we get and i think this is in audrey's journal 
She says, what's funny and a little weird is how quickly and effortlessly he, meaning Seth, incorporated the ranch into his motocop play fantasies. I suppose all kids are that way. Arbitrary boundaries don't interest them, especially when they're playing, but it's still a dizzy blending of genres to see Cassie or No-Face riding a three-legged plastic nag around the old corral. And she talks about how she sees him like pulling in the motocop's vans Mm -hmm. directly into his Western playset in a sandbox. And this is what King's doing. He's created this whole sandbox where he can mix and match all these things that he likes, Harry Potter, Star Wars, and The Magnificent Seven. And he does it to great effect in Wolves. Here, we're not sure, I'm not sure at least, if this is working so far, because it does seem so far-fetched in some way that we've got a kid's imagination coming to life with with these vans and and ghosts and other things that are just sort of running rampant down the street and actually changing the street as well. So the the sun's different, there's cactuses around, there's tumbleweeds rolling down the street, etc. Yeah, and then all of this like takes that next I guess logical leap where Seth is merging these genres in his play and then through the the power of the tech bestows upon him he starts to manifest these things in the real world so suddenly there's the the Ohio town this quintessential neighborhood where these motocop vans just show up <laughs> right just like the motocop vans just fit seamlessly into the western toys they just fit seamlessly into this into Poplar Street, just yep. drive down the road. And now that they are like manifest as real things, they can also do the things that those characters can, which is, I guess, shoot everything in sight and, and kill lots of people. But that is another thing where we're seeing kind of a prototype. I, I think that the Seth Tack duo is a prototype of Patrick Danville, who is an important character in The Dark Tower and in Insomnia. Spoiler alert. Oh. But I think we talked about that when we talked when we met Patrick Danville in the Dark Tower. The Seth Tack duo, neither one of them could achieve all of these things without the other's assistance or, or combination. It's like a, a synergy or, or something. So I'm calling them a duo. They together are much like Patrick is alone. Yeah. So we can see sort of an evolution from King's perspective of let me create this character of Seth possessed by Tack. And, oh, that really worked. I like that. Or I could see some real potential there. Let me do that again in another, another one of my stories and really get to really see where this can go. Yep. And this is the first time in the regulators where we see the characters, in this case, Steve and Johnny, really putting the pieces together. Mm-hmm. That this is unbelievable, but Steve's making that jump to, boy, all this stuff looks like it would be like a first grader drew it because it's very awkwardly proportioned or exaggerated or cartoonish. And then Johnny's sort of taking the things that he sees and he's almost like a detective. He questions Ralphie at the beginning, like, have you seen this toy before? What is this? Hmm. And 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 he's starting to put those together as well. So us as readers may be used to this mixing of genres, but the characters in the story aren't yet. And there's here's where they're figuring it out. Now, what, what, if anything they can do about it, who knows? But at this point, at least the, the mysteries that had been introduced, the characters are starting to piece it together. 
it's also interesting from our pers- from from the perspective of the reader we see this as a a blend of genre but really it's a blend of what seth likes and tack likes yeah those are the things that are popping up because they are the things that they love it's kind of like slumdog millionaire where he knew all the answers to all the questions because he happened to experience just the right thing in his life to know that answer right not it's not that he knew everything about everything so you know he knew which president was on the $50 bill because he once saw a $50 bill he didn't know all american money kind of thing right so so i guess if seth or tack were into transformers or something like that there'd be giant robots smashing up the neighborhood <laughs> right it would just be a different thing but that's where steve and johnny are doing this good work of like figuring out what is the unique combination of things that we're seeing here and where does that lead us who does that lead us to it doesn't lead us to ralphie because ralphie doesn't he's not into all of these things he's not into motocops or, or he he likes motocops but he's not into westerns right? Yeah. What's the focal point? Who, who's at the other end of that triangle? And we know it's Seth. They don't know this yet. But. No. So the other half of that Seth-Tack duo is Tack. And we start to learn a little bit about his purpose and why he's here and where he's come from. And basically, he's been in the depths of the desert before he has inhabited Seth. And now that he's in Wentworth, Ohio, it seems like his job is to have fun. In fact, that's exactly what they say at some point. Text here to have fun. And his fun is not quite so fun, especially for the Hobarts, or the one family that really get the brunt of it early on in early on in the timeline of Tech in Wentworth, Ohio, prior to the events of the book. I did start thinking about at this point in the story, like is Tack an evil demon or is Tack just being Tack? Because if mm. Tack says, I'm just here to have fun, you know me, I'm Tack, right? Hey it's now. me, Tack. I'm here for fun. <laughs> we know that Tack is like this ancient entity that can possess people and can control their bodies and maybe even manifest things in their minds into real things in the world. But maybe he's just like, at a higher plane of existence or something where he sees us like we see a chicken under plastic, right? It's like they're just food or they're just my toys or whatever. He's not evil. He's just being himself. Is that possible? I mean, it is possible. And in fact, that might be where Tack is coming from. But it is cruel and evil from our perspective, for sure. The Hobarts are not presented as innocent victims in any sort of way but the things that tack does to them is really bad and you wouldn't wish that on anyone even somebody as not pleasant as mr hobart and his family Eh, speak for yourself (laughs) fair enough (laughs) the views reflected on this show are for sean mcgurr only and not jay (laughs) King makes them very unlikable and unsympathetic. I mean, that's part of it, right? Is that King is having us potentially feel this way because the first people who suffer at tax machinations are really not nice people. Mm -hmm. 
the boys steal stuff. He's a little shit when it comes to apologizing. He has no no actual feeling behind it when he does it. And his father doesn't care about it. His father is just like, well, he did. He came to you and, and said what he did. That's enough. He doesn't need to apologize or make up for it. Mm-hmm. Audrey has, is having none of that. She's like, that's not how you make an apology. That's not how you ask for forgiveness. And the Hobarts are just presented as just nasty little people. And so by doing so, you start to question, well, maybe what tax doing isn't all that bad. And it makes you have these conflicting feelings, which is a good thing that 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 uh, King has done here. Yeah, otherwise tack would just be a one-dimensional embodiment of evil. And I guess that's not that interesting or or at least it's less interesting right tack reminds me a lot of the twilight zone episode uh, with bill moomy where he has these awesome powers and because he's a seven-year-old boy or nine-year-old boy or whatever he is he doesn't really have control over him and he's not rational about it so he can put his mom in a cornfield and shut his sister up and everyone has to do what they're told because they're they live in constant fear of him the the story was retold in the Twilight Zone movie as well, but it's a good story because it does give you that sense of what would somebody with a lot of power but not a lot of maturity, how would they deal with it? Mm-hmm. And you get a little bit of that from Tack. Like Tack seems to have immense amount of power, but no sense of right and wrong and how to deal with it. At least that's what we've been presented with so far. Like it doesn't seem like he realizes the immense amount of damage he's doing. Yeah, and I think that's what I was kind of speaking to. He he might have a sense of right and wrong. It's just that he defines those terms in a different way than we do. And he does seem to understand being slighted or wronged and spite and revenge. So those things align with our concepts of them, at yes. least enough for us to understand why he would lash out at the Hobarts and other things that he does. But to your point, he shouldn't do those things because from our perspective as human beings who could be possessed by him or destroyed by him, we don't want those things to happen. So, Of course, we might get into the next chapter and find out that Tack is in fact pure evil and that he does know these things. But up to this point, we're, we're at least given that little bit of a doubt in Audrey's journal. And, you know, that would be a great little standalone short story, that Audrey section. You know, it, it takes up a lot of space in the novel. But that telling of this 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 family that's just tortured and and really run ragged by this demon, and they have no idea what's happening to them. They're just like, "What's wrong? Our our luck's gone bad." But it's obviously more than that. Sean, we've been talking about all sorts of things, pure evil, you know, fun stuff like that. How how about we talk about some Dark Tower thinnies? I'll kick us off. There's a line in the section of the book, Hoss has been one of Seth's favorite before Tack came to stay inside him. And so now he was one of Tack's favorites too. They rolled that way, like a wheel. And I thought, like a wheel. I think that's kind of like Ka, no? I highlighted this section myself, Jay, because I thought the exact same thing. Um, between all this Western stuff, he's talking about Hoss, which is one of the characters from Bonanza. Yeah, I was definitely thinking Ka is a wheel and that's how it rolls and it fits in perfectly. That is a great Dark Tower thinny. Our two sets of characters 
are trying to look for a way out of Poplar Street, uh, and they're going through the back green belt that they think will lead them out. And I think this is Steve Ames looked up the east east tending fork of the path, the one that was supposed to lead them out onto Anderson Avenue and help. It ran on for about 10 yards and then opened like the mouth of a funnel into a nightmare desert world. And that almost sounds like a literal thinny. Yeah. Appearing right before the characters here. They can see some sort of portal and it opens into another world. And it's much different from the world that they live in. I, I mean, I don't think it could get any clearer than that. Yeah. Either a thinny or something much like the door that Roland encounters on the beach. Mm, yeah. But either way, it's a direct portal to another world. And yeah, short of sitting there calling it a thinny in the book, I, I'd say, yeah, that, that's that's about as thinny as it gets. Indeed. And the final uh, Dark Tower thinny that I found was a reference to the famous line, say it ain't so, Joe. Johnny suddenly remembered the story every kid used to know about the Black Sox baseball scandal in 1919. And I don't know. King has a pretty encyclopedic knowledge of sports and sports stories and sports history. Did he have to choose that one that happened in 1919? I mean, I think he did. But yes, that's where the Black Sox scandal happened. But it is awful convenient that it's a 1919. So there, there's, there's my, my, my number 19 thinny. There's always one in each section. All right. Well, we want to thank our patrons for supporting the show and getting access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. You can become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash two guys dark tower to learn more. So is it time for some fun stuff? It is time for some fun stuff. Fantastic. Why don't you lead us off? I will. I just want to mention that, you know, Tack might not be good or evil. He might not know right from wrong, but he does have good taste. He says, they're the good ones. Cool Ranch. And I agree. Cool Ranch Doritos are much better than regular Doritos. Good job, Tack. I'll have to agree to disagree with you on that one. I very much like Cool Ranch, but I do not find them superior to original i like the spicy doritos too but i just like spicy you got no comment i get i got no comment i'm just i'm just stunned that you don't think cool ranch doritos are the best what can i tell you so uh the first thing i wanted to call out in fun stuff was the uh king's already dropping the motherfuckers and gary drunk out of his mind and really emotionally distraught because his wife had been shot and her arm was basically detached at this point. He's just mumbling and slurring all his words. And the line that I captured was, I'll be here already. Lost her mafia arm. Zin the muffin fritch. I think King does a really good job of writing drunk. <laughs> but I'm not doing a good job of reading drunk. But Anyway, he got his point across with those MFs, though. Yeah, he got the Mafun arm and the Mafun fritch. Definitely fun stuff. I feel like this is falling flat. <laughs> I'll get us back on track. This is so, almost a thinny, but I put it in fun stuff. Audrey mentions in her journal that she's worried that if 
people saw Seth with his powers. He's like making the vans rotate around his head floating in the air. She says that if anyone saw him, he'd be in some sort of special installation by nightfall, some place where the government studies exceptional children. And one of King's most recent books is the Institute in which there's a special government program where they study exceptional children with powers like telekinesis and telepathy. And it's also what they do in Firestarter in the shop where they get an exceptional child who is Charlie and has fire powers. And Carrie is an exceptional child who doesn't get caught by the government, but we're, she probably would have at some point. It's, it's a theme that comes up a lot in King books and it's brought up here again. For sure. I dig it. And I wanted to just call this out. This line has reappeared. And it is one of my favorite lines. I recorded it in a journal of quotes many, many years ago. As some wise man or other once said, there is no gravity. The earth just sucks. And that might sound familiar to everybody because King also has the same quote in Rage, which we covered just a short while ago. Richard Bachman must love that quote. Yeah, Bachman definitely. The the it, it's almost like Richard Bachman invented the the quote. We started off the show by talking about how Johnny Marinville is going to double back, and that's mm. what his wife tells or his ex wife tells him to do. Is she says to him, "You need to double back," and if you remember, in Back to the Future Two, the theme song was called Double Back by ZZ Top, a King favorite who's also made an appearance in the Wastelands, uh, ZZ Top. So uh, I thought that it was interesting that we've got uh, Double Back, another ZZ Top song referenced here. I like it. I even would have allowed that as a thinny, but I'll take it as just fun stuff. It's great. So speaking of thinnies, I'd like to introduce our listeners to a new segment of the show that we are calling Other Worlds Than These. Other Worlds Than These. And this is a section where we're going to talk about something that has caught our attention. It probably won't have anything to do with Stephen King or The Dark Tower. It'll just be one thing. We'll bring it up. We'll talk about it. So let us know how much you like it. Sean, why don't you start us off? Yeah, so I play a lot of board games. And since the pandemic started I and I have a busy schedule, I've been playing some more solo board games. So these are games one can play on their own. And a new one I picked up was a game called Black Sonata, which is a game by John Keane. That's published by Sideroom Games. And it is a game in which you try to track throughout 17th century London, the dark lady of Shakespeare's sonnets. Oh, it has this ingenious tracking tool that's all analog, but will move the character you're searching for around the board without you knowing where where she is. And uh, it's just an ingenious little game. And I just thought I'd mention it. 
that sounds pretty cool. What do you got, Jay? I start, I'm still thinking about this uh, Black Sonata. I'm kind of curious now. <laughs> <laughs> I will put the link in the show notes, Jay, and then you can find out more. You absolutely should. So I just wanted to mention that I've been a longtime fan of the Slate podcast, Lexicon Valley, hosted by John McWhorter. And he does these wonderful deep dives into the origin of a word or why we say things the way we do or how putting something linguistic in the context of other languages gives us a new framework to understand our own. It's Hmm. a really great podcast. But he's very recently kind of taken that show with that identity and moved it out of the slate, I guess, purview. They've rebranded the the podcast as Spectacular Vernacular. So they have new hosts, but it's still a language-based show. And I listened to their first episode and they had a guest. Uh, And their guest was John Linnell, one half of They Might Be Giants, who our listeners know I am a huge fan of. And John Linnell spent a good part of his quarantine free time learning Latin. <laughs> Much more ambitious than I was. Well, he was just kind of curious. He wanted he got it. He got the Duolingo app, he said in the interview and learned a little bit of Latin. And that inspired him to write a bunch of songs that are sung entirely in Latin. And he released it as an EP. It's called Roman Songs. And uh, check it out. I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I am definitely going to check out that podcast. That sounds right up my alley. Yeah. All right. Well, let us know what you think of this new section. And if you want to learn more, feel free to email or tweet at us. That is going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Cane. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover The Regulators, chapters 10 and 11. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. I'll be here already. Lost her muffin arm. Zin the muffin bitch. No, shit. I can't even read it out loud. <laughs> shit. I should have practiced this. You could almost say your lexicon alley or valley, which is what it used to be called. Yeah, just edit out that. I, I'm the dad here. You're, you're not allowed to make dad jokes. <laughs> <laughs>